Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is David Scott, an award-winning hotel management and hospitality industry professional. Our conversation today has been recorded by Zoom. David Scott was born and raised in Sydney, Australia. His wife, Teresa, is from Council Bluffs, Iowa, whom he met at a sales conference when they both worked for Radisson Hotels. They came back from Australia to the Midwest after the events of 9-11. With a long career in the hospitality industry, David now works for the Peregrine Hotel, a new boutique hotel in downtown Omaha, opening September this year. Through his work in hotels, David found his purpose in assisting individuals with disabilities find meaningful employment, which has flourished into a broader effort to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion for all members of our community. David, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Good to be here. So I think this is an opportunity for, for, for you to um, share a little bit about uh, Australia. So describe, if you would, your, your childhood. Well, absolutely. And I, I think it's pretty ordinary relative to uh, other Australians. I don't know how you'd reflect here, but I was raised in the suburbs of Sydney. And uh, we started in the inner west in a, in a little area called Burwood. Had its own little mayor, municipality, but it's a suburb. I went to Burwood Primary School and later I moved up to Beecroft uh, Primary School. We moved to a different area and from there I went to Epping Boys High School while my sisters went to Cheltenham Girls High School. And I mention all those names because you probably found an English connection. A lot of space in Australia has been named from people from your country that said, you know, this kind of looks like the old country and they renamed it. Um, In fact, the whole of Australia used to be called uh, New South Wales because it looks like Wales on the side and it was new and it was south and of course as you know it's been since changed to Australia and I come from the state now of New South Wales. What are the things you remember that stick in your mind about what life was like for you as a, as a kid in Sydney? It's funny I live in uh, West Omaha now and I've got kids and I walk around the neighborhood run around the neighborhood hang out with the kids and you'll see bikes and basketballs, you'll see things left out. When I grew up, you didn't leave things out because it would have been stolen. And I think to those times where, and this is when I was back in the build area, you just didn't do that. And whether that's a, an extension of my parents and their parents through the Great Depression, etc., where you, you hang on to what you have and then that's passed on to us. I don't have an answer for that. Uh, or whether that's, you know, West Omaha versus, you know, suburban Sydney, I don't have an answer for that either. But certainly uh, the sense of possessions and things you have uh, seem to be much closer. And, and maybe the cost of a basketball or a soccer ball was much more expensive back then also, or, or a bike. So those kinds of things I, I remember. Well, I went to an all-boys school and we wore a uniform every day and we had to have a tie, shoes clean, but that was a public school. I'm sure it was the same in the UK. So again, copy and paste and let's put it down there. Uh, and so it made it very easy <laughs> And when you saw the international school, as they called it, the school that didn't have to wear a uniform, we thought they were like, uh, I suppose, hippies slash people out of left field, way way left wing. I don't know what we thought they were, but they weren't normal people because they could wear anything they wanted to to school. So you said, when I think back and I reflect on that, I feel there's probably a very conservative approach to the way you're raised with little uh, opportunity to go elsewhere outside of those those, uh, boxes that are built for you. 
um, unless you can find something within the arts, uh, within you know performing or within visual arts within your school environment. So, but the idea to think differently was not normal. It's not that you weren't allowed to, but you were moved into that that weird stake. I don't know if you felt the same in the UK, but that was that was kind of our our mindset. I don't know your background. Um, you know what what did your parents do? Uh, what kind of cultural and artistic interests did they have, and how did that sort of manifest itself in in your life? Uh, my father worked in uh, accounting, and uh, he seemed to be quite the extrovert, but very focused on on financing. And so, yeah, he worked. He went off to work. My mother was a stay at home mother. Um, I had three sisters, and her mother, when she was alive, she was raised with us as well. Um, so I, I don't know. You think that's the norm, and you think that's the norm for everybody until you get out of the, the house and you discover wow, there are differences in what goes on around there. We had a, a dog. We lost a few of them. In those days, you didn't take them on a walk on a leash. You just, I don't know what we did. They just get let out and they ran around and did their thing and then they came home again somehow. So I can't even remember when the leash thing came in. Back then also what we do, um, so we'd go to the beach. It's right there. And again, I reflect back on this. Going to the beach for us as kids was going to another suburb in Sydney just on the beach, uh, unless you knew someone who had a place further up north because <laughs> distances are quite far. And uh, I do later on remember going up to Queensland, another state from New South Wales. That's about an eight-hour drive. But these aren't on interstate highways. These are on windy windy visits up and around. They'll go around a tree if they have to. So uh, that's what I remember growing up. And, yeah, you got sunburn. I mean, if you used a, a two, that was maybe cool, maybe four. But if you went to an eight in the sun protection factor, you're a total loser. But yet my father before me, they didn't use anything. They just got burnt and fried every year. So that's why Australia for a while had the highest uh, skin cancer in the world uh, for many years. Nothing to show off about, but that was just the nature of the beast, I suppose. Obviously, the sports were English sports. So, yes, we played cricket. To this day, my wife cannot understand the game, but I love trying to explain it because it just doesn't work, but you still try. I don't know why. Uh, yes, we played soccer. We called it soccer. This is what you say is football. But... We also have many codes of rugby, so rugby league, rugby union, um, and I know they even play in American football, gridiron, down there as well these days. Plus, in other states, they play Australian rules football, which is uh, an extension of the Gaelic football out of, out of Ireland. So there you are, more too much information. You have a long career in the hospitality industry. When was it and what was it that first made you realise that there was a field of hospitality and that uh, it was something that you could get involved in as a career. Yeah, it's, it's nice to think, when did the penny drop that, wow, that's what I want to do with my career? You're absolutely right. And some of these things I fell into. My sister had a friend who became an exchange student to America and was, was crossing the country in the, in the tour bus. And the, she, my sister received a postcard. And I was so buzzed about the idea of being on a bus with people from all over the world in a different country ourselves. I thought, yeah, that's me. So I actually got into tourism first. I got into um, selling packaged destinations for Australian travellers to places like Bali, to Fiji, to the States, to Europe. And uh, that, that sense of creating a, an affordable opportunity to escape on holidays, so you, there's that term. In fact, we were always called creative holidays or travel and tourism, but it was always holidays was part of the, the name of the company. And you went to these destinations and you tried to include some sense of, okay, yes, go to the beach, something cultural, something, some options. And uh, then I, I jumped the fence and then I worked for a hotelier 
who then sold back to people who sent tourists to our world. And that's when I worked for Radisson Hotels in Bali. So the, the sense of hospitality came with a sense of discovery and the sense of uh, tourism. So that's how I got into hospitality was actually via tourism, would you believe? So um, you were selling travel packages to people that wanted to you know, travel away around the world. And um, with the internet now, I mean, I, I, I want you to give me a sense of what the dates were for this. And um, I'm guessing that much of this is pre-internet. And so what did you do to curate these packages? Or did you simply have, this was in the magazine, you can buy option one, two, or three, which one do you want? You're absolutely right. And this is, uh, you ready for this? Last century. Um, yeah, in the days when you went to a travel agency and you looked at the destination brochures and you opened that brochure up and it had tours and it had hotel experiences and, and locations and places to discover, that's what I put together. I was what you called a wholesaler and the retailers were the travel agencies. So I would create a range of brochures for different uh, destinations and our sales team would then sell those destinations to the travel agents who would then sell them to their their consumers and their, their connections that way. Really, it's pretty basic. Hotel accommodation, flights, um, and then you hear the options and then you let the brand of the, of the destination sell itself. So when I say Bali to you, a lot of people get excited. Well, Bali's like Jamaica. It's like a, a uh, eight-hour, six-hour flight from where we're, we're at, actually three hours from Perth. So you had a lot of Australians, I'm sorry, for Indonesia who flew to Bali, but that was the one they went to because it was warm all year round. could sit in this chair for a thousand years and watch the woods consume the neighborhood watch the ambitions come and go surround me and engulf me we could ditch the tv and spend a little more time reading books and singing songs on the porch sit here watching the daylight wane in little chase and even less memory I just want to be still I just want to be still sometimes I wonder if I'll ever be free of these things that are weighing Heavy on me, they keep me from doing or going or knowing The sun comes up, I go back to sleep In our so-called liberation of self We have only bound the shackles more tightly Free up your mind and start thinking a good thought You mentioned Bali. You must have uh, traveled to a lot of interesting destinations in order to do the job that you needed to do, which is to understand the destination and be able to um, piece together experiences and to sell it as a travel product. Did you realize you had some innate yearning to see more of the world and experience it? You know, it's, uh, I was an exchange student to Greece, and maybe this is a better example. And coming back from Greece, uh, I fell in love with the culture. I have what I consider a second family over there, a host brother, host sister, etc. And I found myself traveling back to Greece when I had my own vacation. 
and I would discover all areas of Greece. And I probably went back 15, 20 times. And I realized that was my personal discovery of myself in my 20s and, and early 30s and, and continually going back to Greece. Now now I go back and bring my kids and my kids get to know their kids, so it's an extension. But I realized it was getting to know myself through that travel to Greece. So that's me reflecting on that. Um, and there's no doubt that was the same for Indonesia and um, many parts of Asia. But I wasn't uh, cognizant of that at the time, whereas the emotional connection to that other home, which you mentioned, was Athens, a, a place in Athens I lived for a year. So that that really um, moved me to a different area. And that's probably what drove my travel in the first place was that exchange student experience. A whole year in Athens uh, sounds both really daunting, but also as you say, very, very eye-opening. So what did you learn about yourself? <laughs> I actually, after that, I studied philosophy of all things, would you believe? <laughs> I mean, it's not so much what you learn in that year. You, you learn that you, know, you are whatever you want to be and you are a, connected to so many people around the world and culture, culturally, etc. not just... Um, locked into you as that person who grew up in that, that childhood Australia and then that family and that previous home we spoke of. Um, but I, th- I think that sense of uh, discovery and that desire to, to connect with the people around the world, that's, that's what I discovered from that trip to Greece. And all the issues that we all focus in our own countries, feeding your kids, educating your kids, learning and growing, the same issue in, in places like Greece and every other country in the world. How do you best raise and take care of your family and each other and each other's community? So I think there's no question that. So why would we be fighting in this world when we're all facing the same issues? Um, let's move forward and, and do it together. So I think it, I reflect back now and, and look at that. But at the time, I was you know, 18, 19 as an exchange student. And going back every time was, was at a different stage of my, um, I suppose, growing up and becoming uh, single and becoming uh, an adult and then getting married, et cetera, down the track. So, yeah, just part of that growth, except I included Greece as the stomping ground, not just what I was doing in Australia or, or traveling to other destinations with work, with Bali, etc. Part of what I want to explore with you today is the idea of hospitality. So when you were a kid or when you look back on being a kid, how do you think about the word home? How do I think of the word home? I, I appreciate the question. I suppose that's where you slept. That's where you, you were fed. That's where you had people that you loved, your family, you can connect with. They looked after you. I think that's it, that sense of feeling taken care of. I'm trying to attach that to a sense of hospitality. And certainly when you go to a location outside of your home and people travel so much more now where I I expect minimum levels and most of those should be pretty easy, a clean bathroom, a a clean space. But I expect uh, to feel safe, feel comfortable. And I've got people I I can connect with who can help me along if I need anything. And it's a pretty simple answer, but yeah. You now have a long track record in specifically as regards hotels, um, hotel management, the hospitality industry. What took you into, in, into that field and, and um, what were your experiences? Well, I met with hotel managers in very, a whole bunch of different countries because I'd negotiate rates and, in, and rather than just going in and say, okay, here's the best rate I can get for my Australian travellers, ultimately you're helping them solve their challenge, whatever that may be. 
And in the one-on-one of sales is understand the needs of your client. And in, in this case, I was a buyer buying rates from a hotel, but I realized in the same vein, I need to make sure they understand that I, I'm looking to help them solve their problem, which is how do I get more tourists? And, and do you want to be four of Australians? Maybe not, but maybe they fit a certain percentage. <laughs> and, and so understanding their world a bit more and understanding their challenges and, and uh, the extension of what they needed to do, which was take care of their communities take care of their, their people. And that, that I really, I really enjoy. And then the opportunity came where life says, you know what, you need to do something different. You, you can't just keep doing Bali tours and, and on reflection, of course, that's when the internet came in. That's when that changed the whole world of wholesale and travel. So they had to really change things up. And in that time, that's when I became, um, jumped over the fence and worked in Bali for a hotel, the Radisson um, over there at that time. And when you reflect back on hotels, they never talk about hotels as, one of the oldest industries, but I'd say it's number two or number three. I think we know what number one is. Uh, number two is they had to eat somewhere, but they had to generally people had to sleep somewhere too. So hotels have been around forever. And uh, while you've got a whole bunch of big brands and franchising and whatever else, ultimately that taking care of someone, clean bed, etc., maybe breakfast, maybe food, etc., is part of it. That was something uh, that's been around forever. And part of that is a very old school mindset and a slow moving industry. Because it's simple. You come in and, I'm, and I want to take care of you. If I don't care, take care of you very well or the price is too high, you're probably not going to come back. So you've got to get all those things right. You mentioned in your time at Greece that you were nudged towards philosophy, which makes perfect sense, of course, um, given that you know, a lot of the Western tradition of philosophy kind of begins in, in the Mediterranean area in Greece and so on. I think that that also suggests the philosophical and perhaps cultural rich traditions around hospitality and the uh, implications of opening up a home which which we really want to think of a hotel as or i mean hotels want to conjure that sensibility um and all the ways you described home earlier and and i wonder if you've thought more deeply about um the connection between maybe a, a more philosophical viewpoint on what hospitality is and how brands that you've worked with have been trying to conjure some of those cultural traditions. You're absolutely right. Uh, And it's interesting, uh, Conrad Hilton himself, and maybe this was naive, again, reflecting back now, back in the 50s and and prior to that, but he felt post-World War II that the hospitality industry was going to be the industry to bring peace to the world. That sounds pretty lofty, but you think about taking care of people from all over the world, in my American location or Australian, whatever it is, and vice versa, how much closer can you get to people? So I can, I can see that and feel that. And I think there is an extension of that. Um, and certainly in our world and hotels, we need to be sensitive to what people's needs are, be it at a, at a local level community, but also uh, nationally and certainly internationally. Yes, we have training in different areas for what people's needs are and what expectations they have. And rather than philosophically thinking, well, what's what wrong with that problem, that person not doing the right thing or using the right things the right way in the hotel room. And I've got many stories that you could laugh at, but it's just they didn't understand what that was for. And they, they used it for something else. And, and so that's happened many times. And uh, certainly in Omaha, you don't get as much of an international clientele as you do, say, in Asia. But uh, you still have the same surprise factor because it's just a different culture altogether. You uh, spent some time with Radisson in Bali. You met your wife. 
she's from the Midwest. And so at some point you made that choice that it was time to um, relocate. And you'd mentioned that in, in your bio that the catalyst for that in some ways was the events of 9-11. So uh, what, what was it that um, drew your wife back and bringing you with her? First things first, we did live in Australia. We got married in Australia. My contract finished in Bali. We moved back there. Not that, and, the, and the plan, not, again, naively was to either live there for five years and then move over here for five years and then we pick a destination like we had so much money to do that. And living in Australia for a couple of years, um, obviously having met my family, she realized I got to get out of here. No, I'm joking. But that, that nurturing sense that a lot of Americans had where it was such a, a devastating time uh, and that nurturing sense was I got to be home. I got to be home with my family. And I, and I knew that and I felt that. So rather than waiting another couple of years, we said, let's just go now. And it's funny, I remember going into the police department to get my fingerprints for the, uh, the visa, et cetera. And uh, I said, well, where? They said, where are you going? I said, to America. They said, well, what do you want to go there for? And this is, this is immediately post-September 11. Of course, why would you want to go there? Because that was the place that was just attacked. So very different times. But it just felt right. And, and also, I have to say, I'd, I'd already, already checked out from Sydney. I lived in Bali uh, for a couple of years working with Radisson's. Uh, having lived in Greece and, and maybe I was trying to get away subliminally all these years anyway. So coming back to Sydney for a couple of years and then realizing, you know, I'm okay to go again. It's always going to be there. And you, you asked about home. Home, there's a sense of it always going to be there in some sense. And every time you do go home, with the um, quotation marks, when you come back home, how has it changed? That's often what you do. And maybe it's the way people look or the way the, what shop isn't there anymore. Uh, yeah, that, that was kind of what I'm thinking, but I've got off track already, but that's, that's what happened. That's why we came back. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives. My guest today is David Scott, an award-winning hotel management and hospitality industry professional. Our conversation today is being recorded by Zoom. When you were with the Hilton brand, you received the 2014 CEO Light and Warmth Award, which is Hilton Worldwide's highest accolade for any of its team members. 
And uh, the award specifically uh, related to your efforts around uh, an initiative called Project Search, which helps to develop young students with intellectual and developmental disabilities and help them transition into longer term employment. I want to start there and then we can maybe move into lead diversity as a program too. So what is Project Search and what did it mean to you? Uh, Well, Project Search itself is a program that was developed at Cincinnati Children's Hospital and really they found uh, they had a need for employment and they found people that came into certain departments would would look to get out of that department to move up up the line. And long story, they got to a connection with a uh, disability uh, organisation where that developed over many trials to then become a classroom of kids between 18 and 21 to finish their last year of school on site uh, at a, a location where they could learn some transferable skills. These are kids with intellectual developmental disabilities. And so they're not going to go through the mainstream graduation of high school. So they need to find some other skill sets. And, and they found these kids, while well, they came along as, as students and really just high school kids, really left as adults because they were treated like adults. They were treated like people who needed to give it, being given expectations to here's what you need you to do complete, here's what I need you to do. And there's a trial process, there's a selection process. And so the hotel I worked for at the time uh, became a host site in um, partnership with the Pilling Levista Schools. And we had eight classes of kids coming through that program. And I was just so buzzed by it. Every time you met the, the new school, the new class coming through, the, you always met them as little kids. And, and some of them were really, really shy. And some had big voices and some didn't speak. And all sorts of backgrounds. I mean, they might, they might have Down syndrome or um, they might be on the autism uh, spectrum and, and other areas that you hadn't heard of or understood before. And, and not often, rarely, do we have anyone with a physical disability. It was very much intellectual developmental. But they, they knew how, they knew what was required of them when it was shown to them. And everybody had a very low bar when they first came in and we just discovered, wow, they just blew it away every time and made us as a team at the hotel understand that, wow, there's just so much more out there as far as their ability and yet we just keep calling them disabled and we keep putting them in that box and not giving them a chance. And so we grew realising how wonderful they are and and they they appreciated the the pats on the back and the excitement we got for them and they responded to that and they, they became just growing up adults and part of our team. So to the point where the retention started to go down because they were not leaving, they would stay. And, and now I'm, I'm still Facebook friends with many of them too. You, you become part of their extended family. It was a very, um, yeah, it's very, very much an, an experience for me to realise, wow, we're part of their world and we're making a difference in their world. So while I have absolutely no um, skills in training as far as uh, the disability is concerned, what I could do was tell people about it. So I'm a bit embarrassed about all those awards, but every time I, I was given an award, it was me accepting it on behalf of this program. And by the way, everyone else needs to learn about it. Uh, and so I leverage those awards to take, say to people, this is something which everyone could and should be doing. And so long, long stories from that, um, I was doing things in the disability world. From a corporate perspective, I was working for a for-profit organisation. So they would ask me to speak about how is it working for a for-profit organisation to host these kids or even employ these kids and and that was the positive i was i was sharing with them is there a particular story you might be able to share just to just highlight the benefits of that experience i've I've got so many stories and i get usually quite choked up when i share a lot of them uh all the kids when they come in they have a, a mentor one of the one of the lads he came through and and he every lunch it was um i think it was a certain 
buffalo wings, chicken, and, and a diet pepper, or whatever, whatever it was. He always had that. And, and he went out with his mentor, and the mentor said, why don't you try this one and try that? And suddenly he, he did try it. And so for his parents, like, wow, he's breaking the cycle of changing his lunch. doesn't mean a big deal. But there was a sense of him being opened up and being given a chance. And, and six, seven, eight years later, he's still working in the laundry. Um, the one that gets me most is this guy who you have no idea he's got any disability whatsoever, but they lost him once. And you don't lose kids with special needs. <laughs> you don't have to do that. And uh, all the, the food had come in from um, in the big freezing, uh, freezing, frozen traps, I should say. And so it's got to get into the freezer or on the fridge because it's going to perish very, very fast. And they couldn't find him anywhere. And when they did find him, he was already putting the food away. The context of, of how do I teach initiative, uh, you, you can't necessarily get that in the classroom. You have to kind of get it. And, and that was there. And he's been working there ever since as well. So wonderful, just little stories. And there's another one, um, geez, I think of Amy, who was actually one of those gothic girls, all black all the time. And, and really, and, and whether she didn't do so well at school, was very much had a learning disability. And she could learn from people, but not from books. And it took her probably 10 months in our classroom before someone said, you know, you really need to step up. And then she became a leader. And we had an Embassy Suites conference that I went to. And uh, I had her come to that conference with us and speak to the 500 directors of sales and general managers um, and had them in tears. And she was the uh, best speaker. So she's, she's, I think, working in security now, would you believe? She was working in, in laundry as well, but she got out and, but yet she discovered some confidence within herself and, and she was able to move this audience of people and she was voted best speaker at the whole conference, including all the, the heads of the, the brands as well. So, yeah, a little, I could give you 80 different stories. I won't, I won't go on, but there you are. You have just graduated from the first initial cohort of a new program in Omaha called Lead Diversity. And it feels particularly salient now given all of the social unrest and the protest about racial inequity existing in our society. So tell us about lead diversity. Again, it's like that postcard that my sister received. And I went, I've got to, I've got to do this. And uh, when I saw the, the plans for it and what it was all about, uh, and my thought then was to make sure people with disability and one in five people have a disability. So it's a, it's a large audience and it crosses all, all lines. But I realized that was something I wanted to be part of. Uh, back to the whole exchange student thing, I wanted to connect with people of different backgrounds. And I want to make sure that the, they were part of that included dialogue and that equity conversation. So that's, that's why I applied for it. Uh, moving on from there, of course, uh, we didn't have every minority or every group you could think of. We didn't unfortunately have any Native Americans in there. We tried to certainly speak to what had taken place uh, as far as their history, but there's no one personally representing that group of people. And also, we can't expect one individual to represent all. I mean, I don't represent all Australians. One African-American doesn't represent all African-Americans, of course. But uh, at least there's a, a sense of where their, their background is and where they're coming from. But ultimately, it's, it's let's, let's search through all our, our biases. Let's understand where people are coming from. And uh, let's move forward with this sense of the benefit of diversity and inclusivity and, and obviously equity all around.
so you've clearly got a passion for, I mean, dare I say, um, maybe this is stretching it too far, but you are manifesting hospitality in its, in its really broad interpretation to put your arms around communities at large, to be um, very inclusive. And of course, you have the venue for that because your industry is um, a sort of built environment that invites people to come in and and to be at rest and to be welcome. And so how are you thinking about all of these experiences that you've just shared with us, Project Search and Lead Diversity? How are those programs and the lessons you've learned informing what you're doing with the new boutique hotel? Tell us what the Peregrine Hotel is and then about how these programs are going to influence your thinking there. Uh, firstly, the location is on uh, 18th and Douglas, so 203 18th Street, which is just south of um, Douglas. And you may not notice it because it's only an eight-storey building. And when you think of the Woodman Tower, it's actually in the shadow of the Woodman Tower. And it was originally built, would you believe, uh, started in 1912 and finished in 1914. And it matched the architecture of the Brandeis Theatre, which was on the same block. What you're seeing as far as the exterior of the hotel, and to us it may look just like a brick building, but that was the same exterior of the Brandeis Theatre, which then was knocked down in the 50s because people weren't going to the theatre anymore. They started going to the movies, I suppose, and that became the Brandeis um, Department Store, etc. So we're, it's a 106-year-old building, but it's a, it became an office building, World Insurance, and uh, it was most recently owned by Woodman. And so that was just an office building. So what we've done is, and we're still doing it, they're gulling it and turning it into a boutique hotel. The interesting part is it's a block. So all the, the rooms that are on the outside uh, obviously have views. But being a block, we still need to utilize the rooms on the inside. And you can't really sell a hotel room without a view. So we've the, the architect dug down six stories and there's a great big hole from the roof all the way down six stories so that all the rooms on the inside can have a view internally. And we had a muralist put together a six-story, he created the artwork, we had a muralist put together a six-story peregrine falcon inside. So we're calling those the falcon view rooms on the inside. And this is open to the elements. And the architect didn't think about how do you remove snow six stories down in that small environment. So we've got some things to work out. But uh, then the outside rooms are called the peregrine rooms and the inside falcon view. So... Uh, that's, that's the first step. But the Peregrine is named after the Peregrine Falcon Breeding Program atop the Woodman. It's been there since 1988. It's connected to the history of Omaha. And that's, that was the idea of the brand. It's the Peregrine Hotel, but it's in what they call the Curio Collection. Curio, the word, uh, really comes from curiosity. And the idea of the Curio Collection within Hilton is to connect with the local fabric, the local environment, have a, a local story. And ours is, is all about the Peregrine Falcon, how it reaches and connects the next stage to our guests and our desire for diversity and inclusion. Here's the fun, the, the serendipitous, if that's the word, the word peregrine comes from the Latin for traveler. And maybe there's a connection to pilgrim. I don't know. Or maybe there is, but there's another word peregrinate means to travel and peregrination would be, I suppose the journey, but we don't use those words, but look them up. They're still there. And uh, so when I think of the word peregrine, and the idea of someone coming to our hotel with their, their travel uh, experience or even the collective journey we all are on in our lives, uh, that is what I see as, as the other side, how we, we will celebrate, uh, celebrate the journey of, of us all 
and we're all we're all on this journey together. And how can we um, learn from each other and grow from that? So, again, maybe naive, maybe lofty sounding when we're talking about trying to create a new uh, hotel environment. But um, from my side, I think that's essential. Uh, when someone's come from who knows where in the world, they need to find that sense of home, and that's what we we hope to put together. So the elements I spoke to relative to the Peregrine travel meaning and that inclusion, it's going to start with the, the staff and the team. And so our, our intention uh, from the get-go is to seek out people from all over Omaha, from all backgrounds. And we're working with organizations such as Partnership for Kids, uh, such as the Legacy Program, which is attached to OPPD and Avenue Scholars and quite a few areas where we want to connect with people from North Omaha, South Omaha. We're looking for people who, who get and understand and appreciate uh, that who someone is coming from and what their background is, is something that's important and exciting. And that brings um, a sense of inclusion, not inclusion, but diversity. But that, that's what brings the benefit to a different approach to taking care of people. So we're doing that. And we're also reaching out to um, Nebraska Vocational Rehab and, and Assistology and people that work with people with disabilities, uh, the, the PACE program. Uh, as well, which is the Partnership for um, Autism Career Employment. So wherever we can find the right people, ultimately we're looking for the best employees, but part of that we're looking for is that, that commitment and that sense of, um, yeah, being a shared space with everybody at an equal level. There's no sense of pecking order, of course. Yeah. So that's, yeah, if you work there and you travel there, whatever your background is, hopefully you'll, you'll connect with someone who you can relate to. major issue in the world right now is a COVID-19 pandemic, which has devastated many industries, of course, uh, and, and many associated with hospitality. So how has the pandemic impacted hospitality and, and, and what do you see as the future for it? Uh, it's, it's been absolutely devastating. Uh, so many hotels have just closed and whether they'll open or not is, is to be seen. Uh, we'll find that out. So many of my friends from colleagues have been furloughed or, um, or lost their jobs altogether. Now, will they find something? I'm sure they will. That, that's what life does. You've got to, you've got to keep feeding yourself and making, taking care of things. So it, it will reinvent itself. Right now, the reinvention of, of hospitality is 
uh, ensuring everybody is more aware of just how clean we're making this place. So rather than not telling you about what we're doing in the cleanliness and how we do things, and uh, we're now actually making sure you are aware of that when we come to your place, here are all the things that are happening. Here's how many times a day. Um, I mean, you may recall many years ago, it was all about bed bugs. And in the world of bed bugs, you now have mattresses totally covered so they can't get in. Uh, but now extend that to this mindset of okay, all surfaces are clean and, and, and they'll, they'll leave uh, things out so people can either use themselves, but they'll see that this person's coming through and, and cleaning this place many, many times over. So that, that's probably the, uh, and there obviously will be screens and, and I imagine masks as required depending on how things move forward. Uh, yeah, but ultimately we want you to feel welcome and feel safe. So that's, that's the focus. Um, the hospitable side is, is, is part and parcel of that as much as we can. But uh, it will it will come back as people feel more comfortable in traveling themselves. So when that grows, as we will too. I would imagine like many, um, we're trying to prognosticate uh, in, in some quarters and in others, we're um, looking to others to spot trends for us. And I guess the maybe just for you and I talking, we, we just don't know. And maybe we're holding on for the silver bullet of a vaccine. I'm sure that will emerge at some point, certainly adequately enough for people to feel a bit safer. And so maybe the question I should be asking you is, how are you dealing with the uncertainty? The simple fact that we just don't know how hospitality will look in the next 12 to 24 months. Good question. And of course, I'm crystal balling. Do I think it will come back in the month of July? No, I don't think it'll come back. August, September, it's going to take some time. And if you look at places like Australia and New Zealand where they're close to eradicating it, they're also saying no one can travel internationally until 2021. So, yeah. So uh, it'd be interesting to see how that, that pans out in, in America where you know it's a much larger population and there are lots of movements and, and lots of needs to connect here and there. Uh, I think it will definitely come back and the question is just when and how long will it take? Can I say 2022 will be a normal year? No. <laughs> it's the same kind of thing. So, yeah, it's like the September 11. It's like uh, all the disasters we've had in, in the last, what, 10, 20 years, recessions, all sorts of things that have hit the, the industry. Generally speaking, the best way to communicate and connect with people is person to person. So if I'm doing a deal, uh, it's best done that way rather than on a Zoom call or on a telephone how much more business goes towards web calls and whatever else. I'm sure some will, um, but it will save money. And so there will be a slow return, but uh, I see it returning, but yeah, not for, I don't see normal anymore. What has been your, your own worst experience of hospitality and what has been your best experience of hospitality? Uh, (laughs) The worst experience is when, things just don't go the way you expect and you can only do what you can do and whether it's a flooding or in a torrential rain or a tornado all these things hit hotels as well so i think that's probably the the worst case scenario i mean i've I've been on a a trip across an island in flores which is an island a few a few uh, east of bali actually just close to komodo where the dragons come from so we're in the, you could say we're in the middle of nowhere and um, it's both the best and the worst. And we're on the bus, we're going across and the bus suddenly stops and falls backward and almost falls down this bridge and we have to get off the bus. We, we couldn't travel anymore because the 
bus was in the bridge. So, and we're in the middle of nowhere. And of course, I don't have tow trucks in this part of the world. And you've got lots of rocky environments and what have you. Um, and yet we get off the bus and, and myself and I, there's a guy from the UK and a guy from Switzerland and myself an Australian. And here we are in Indonesia in the island of Florence. And we sat down and uh, all these kids started talking to us because we're the only white guys. The guy from the UK had a very large nose and they found that something fun to talk about. So I'm sharing this as an out-of-left-field experience where the worst case was, oh, my God, we could have died. We could have gone through in that bus. And, and I'm, I'm using tourism in this hospitality sense in going across country and, and imagine could we bring travel to, tourists to this area because that's what I was there for to work that out. Is it hospitable enough? Is it safe enough? So clearly it wasn't. But here we are in this cafe and these kids, we, would, we had such a warm welcome from the local villagers and also that the, the guy from the UK had such a, a good sportsmanship because, yeah, they're making fun of his big nose <laughs> and he was, he was having fun with it. And, and so we, we connected across cultures even though we, we had a bit of Indonesian amongst us, but they didn't really understand us and we didn't understand it. But we could laugh at each other and have fun with each other even though we'd just been through this catastrophe and we'd just lost three, four days on our trip, travel and everything else that went wrong. The destination we were going to was actually the um, three lakes on top of a volcano, which are completely different colours, and that was the, the location. But the highlight was just hanging around with these little villagers, having coffee. It was the best coffee I'd had, by the way, uh, and feeling a sense of, of inclusion and you're part of our village now. We'll take care of you while you're here. Does that, does that answer the question? That's something. That's a fond memory I have. What I really appreciate about that is... Um just how it shows you it, it's often the smaller interactions. I mean, clearly there was a big moment of, you know, the potential danger combined with the boredom of being stuck, but then relishing this connection that you had that was entirely unexpected, unplanned, that had these, these moments of small delight that coalesced into something that, that was much larger and had a meaning to it that, you know, maybe you're still trying to pass today. I have an add-on to that story. We kept driving and the, the creek was taking out the bridge. And so as we pulled up to the creek, one of the guys came out and said, oh, we can probably put together a little bridge for you if you'd like. And we said, that'd be nice. And so an army of guys came out, constructed this fabulous-looking bridge of, of, of wood. We drove over. Um, we paid him for it because he was obviously asking for that. And as we left, they started pulling the bridge apart. And we went to the next <laughs> village. And the policeman said, hey, did those guys try and pull that bridge episode with you? And we said, yeah, can you believe it? They made us pay to get across the bridge. And, and then we realized he's on the take too. That's how they took care of each other, surviving. My guest today has been David Scott, an award-winning hotel management and hospitality industry professional. David, it's been fun chatting and a real pleasure journeying with you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Nice shirt, by the way, David. I've got two shirts, summer shirts with collars that I wear on Zoom. 
that's the end of this week's show. Our sound engineers are Mark McGaw and Dalimar McTizik. I'm your host and producer, Stuart Chittenden. Live's radio show is an executive production of Squish Talks. Find links to podcasts of this and previous shows via our Instagram and Facebook profiles at Live's Radio Show. Join me next week for more conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. Thank you.